Today we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, beginning with verse 17. And we are going to be looking primarily at this question of work and whether it's meaningful or not. And I'm sure some of you have your own opinions on that. But let's look at, uh, let's read uh, 2.17 through chapter 3. Let's just get it all in our heads and then we'll take it up and break it apart and see what lessons we have for ourselves today in God's Word. Ecclesiastes 2.17. This will cheer you up. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days, his work is pain and grief. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere Him. Whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. I also thought, 
As for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Man's fate is like that, that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward, and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work, because that is his lot. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. Grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Well, it's a little bit of encouragement to brighten your day. That's what you come to Bible study for. Just get a little oomph, give you a little, give you a little motivation to go out there and beat snakes. And that's what we've been taught about work. Thomas Carlyle said, "The best worship is stout working." An anonymous author once said, "Workers find a thousand joys the idle never do." President Grover Cleveland said. Honor lies in honest toil. One day, President Teddy Roosevelt was giving a Labor Day speech in Syracuse, New York, and he said this, Far and away, the best prize that life offers is the chance to work hard at work worth doing. Robert Louis Stevenson, one of our poets, said, I know what pleasure is, for I have done good work. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, Every man's task is his life preserver. And a famous... Thomas Alva Edison said, I never did a day's work in my life. It was all fun. Here's what Solomon in Ecclesiastes teaches us. This is Roman number one. Without God, work sucks. Yes, the preacher said it. Without God, work sucks. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. So much for Thomas Alva Edison and Ralph Waldo Emerson. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Why? Look at A. Meaningless work causes us to hate our wealth. Meaningless work causes us to hate our wealth. We end up hating the fruit of our labor because of the meaningless of our, meaninglessness of our work. Why? Well, look at verse 18. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. Number one, we leave it to our heir. We leave it to our heir. Not only are you not taking it with you, but somebody else is going to get to play with the toys you left behind and work so hard for. Number two, in verse 19 we learn, our heir may be a fool. Number two, our heir may be a fool. So not only are you leaving it behind, you may be leaving it behind to an idiot. 19a says, and who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool? You don't know. You don't know how your children and grandchildren are. You know, your estate may go down two or three generations. It may go down more than that. You have no idea who's following you. And all you have to do is look at the newspapers every once in a while, and you'll see these people who've been given privileged positions in business, and they don't know what they're doing. But somebody left them a lot of money that was very hard, very uh, worked hard for in a very hard way. 
Number three, we have no enduring control. We have no enduring control. Oh, we actually have it now. How about that? I won't be so specific. 19b says that yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So your work is meaningless because you're going to get all this money, you're going to save it up, buy your house, 401k, and then you croak. Somebody else is going to get your car and your house. They're going to take your clothes down the Salvation Army. <laughs> it's just going to be handed out, whoever wants it or doesn't want it. And your your household effects, you know, some of the children will say, oh, I always thought that table was the ugliest thing. Just give it, just sell it somewhere, you know. And they're just going to, going to look over all your stuff, decide what they want, what they don't want. Most of it they want. They'll want your bank account. And they'll get the lawyers to help them divide that up. And they're going to control it. You have no more control over it. I don't care what you do to your will. You're not going to control it. Somebody else is going to control it. This too is meaningless. Fourthly, verse 21 teaches us that our heir didn't work for it. So how did they come up with all this money? I worked hard for it. Where did they get it? They, they didn't work for it. They just receive it. And fifthly, all this stuff, verse 23, keeps us up at night. All his days, his work is pain and grief. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This, too, is meaningless. So your work is keeping you from resting even on your day off. You're still thinking about it. Some guys, you know, I know a guy who, uh, he was in church. He was in back of the church, and he was just taking notes furiously. And the pastor, this is a friend of mine, this is a true story. The pastor came up to him, he was a bank president. And he said to him, John, I've just been so impressed that during the sermons, you're just, you're just rapidly taking notes. He said, George, I've I got to tell you that uh, I'm not taking notes on your sermon. Oh, really? What are you doing? He said, I'm working on my business for the next day. <laughs> He's sitting back there, you know, doing his account, you know, working on stuff for his bank. Preacher thought he was taking notes, but no. He just, this guy is just consumed with his work, even when he's sitting there worshiping, trying, supposed to be worshiping God. So work is meaningless, and <laughs> it causes us to hate our wealth. That's, that's what the writer of this great book is telling us. Now, if you turn to verse 24, however, you see that there is something going on here that we can begin to see about our meaningless work. And we're going to see that, of course, work is not ultimately meaningless, but it's not obvious, and that's the point we want to make. The most obvious thing is that work does seem to be meaningless. Meaningless, meaningless work, B, causes us to seek God's wisdom. Causes us to seek God's wisdom. How do we do this? Well, we've got to look at the big frustrating picture. Not just the details. It says here, verse 24, A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too I see is from the hand of God, for without him who can eat or find enjoyment? Verses 24 and 25. So this phrase, a man can do nothing better, is a common phrase in Ecclesiastes. And what it's basically saying is, you're not going to find ultimate meaning in your work. And that's the problem. And some of us are trying to find our identity in our work. 
We're trying to find our joy in our work. We're trying to find all of our relational needs and social needs met in our work. We're trying to drain everything we can out of our work. It becomes completely meaningless. And you'll even hate the work itself. But if you rise up and take the big picture, you'll see that, okay, a man can do nothing better than just eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. So we do find satisfaction in our work. Why? Well, number one, you, you find that God gives wisdom. He says, to the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. So he gives wisdom to the wise, those who are repentant. But to the sinner, it's just the opposite. This, for the sinner, all his days are work, are pain and grief. So God is going to give us wisdom about this. So we turn to Him. Secondly, when you look at these famous verses in chapter 3, verse 1 through 11a, you find that God has appointed joy and sorrow. That is, there is a time for everything. So the big picture is we rise up and we realize, you know, life is made up of a mixture of things. And we must understand the nature of living in a broken world. And some of us are acting as though it's supposed to be a perfect world for us. Maybe broken for everybody else, but for us it's going to be perfect. And the author here is saying, no, let's realize God has appointed everything for its own time. There is a time, he says, to be born. And there's a time to die. And the life we're in involves both of those things. And you need to get reconciled to them. There's a time to plant and a time to uproot. And so sometimes you weed your garden, sometimes you, you sow in your garden. There's a time to kill. There's warfare. And there's a time to be, for the doctors to take care of people and try to keep them alive. And they're both in this world. And you have to realize that's what this world is made up of. And sometimes we've gotten our expectations way too high. There's a time to tear down and a time to build. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh. You're going to have both in this life if you're really understanding life as it is. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. Some people try to do all of one or all the other. Cynic is always being mournful. Uh, the superficial sanguine is, is always trying to laugh and dance. And the author is saying, neither one of these guys got it. You just need to realize my life is made up of both. There's a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. There's a time to embrace. He's probably talking about the sexual life here in verse 5. There's a time to embrace and a time to refrain. Some of you don't realize there's a time to refrain. Reminds me of the guy who wanted to join the Baptist church. And he went to the pastor, and the, the pastor told him, okay, now if you're going to join the Baptist church, he said, are you married? He said, yes, sir. He said, okay, if you're going to join the Baptist church, you've got to learn to refrain for six weeks at a time. Really? Yes, you've got to be celibate for six weeks. The guy says, okay, I really want to be a Baptist, so I'll do this. So he, he goes off and gives it a best shot. And about, you know, a couple of weeks, he comes back to the pastor and says, Pastor, I was doing really fine. We were remaining celibate and, and refraining, just like you said. There's a time for everything. He said, but what happened was the peanut butter jar fell on the floor. And she bent over to get it. And Pastor, I'm just telling you, I, I could not refrain I just could not hold it back. And he said, well, I'm sorry, you'll have to get out of here. And the guy said, well, that's what the grocery clerk said to me too. Uh, (laughs) 
So there is a time to embrace and a time to refrain. In your grocery store, it's time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up the search. A time to keep and a time to throw away. Believe me, there's a time to throw stuff away. My, my wife cannot believe the old magazines I've got stored up in these, all these big canisters. What are you going to do with these things? She needs to memorize Ecclesiastes 3.6. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent. Oh, that's my verse. And a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. So what the author is saying is you have to realize God has appointed both joy and sorrow. And you will have to enter into both. And if life seems meaningless to you because it's not always happy, that's your problem. Rise up to 30,000 feet, see what this world is made of, is made up of all these moments. There is a time for everything. And he says, verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. That word beautiful could just be appropriate. He's made everything appropriate for its time. So God has decreed this. He's in it all. And so whether you're weeping or laughing, he's in it. So meaningless work causes us to seek God's wisdom. And God gives wisdom. And God teaches us that he has appointed joy and sorrow. But notice in verse 11b, God has put eternity into our hearts. It's a wonderful verse. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. So basically, we live in a world that is mixed with blessing and cursing. It's mixed with sorrow and joy. But in our hearts, we have eternity, which causes us to keep hoping for perfection. You see the tension? We live in an imperfect world, and yet we've been given the down payment of perfection already in our hearts. He's put it in our conscience that we were made for something and that this world was made for something better than what we're seeing. So we have to understand where the tension is coming from. Because there's something of eternity already in time in our own hearts. And yet we're living in a time-bound world. And there's a sense in which we're trapped in a world that our consciences is not or they're not comfortable with it. So God has put eternity in our hearts. God has done that. And fourthly, notice in verse 12 and 13, God then gives satisfaction in our work. He says, I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. Now, this is a hint as something. We, we may ask ourselves after having read chapter 2, how in the world do you find satisfaction in your work? And when you look how frustrating it is, all this stuff we're earning from whatever we're doing we're not going to be controlling. We're going to be passing it down to someone who didn't work for it, and we don't know whether they're going to use that for good or ill. How frustrating. How meaningless. And yet he says here, we're supposed to find satisfaction in our work. Well, turn to 1 Corinthians 7, which will be found on page 1852, 1851 in your Bible. And let's see what Paul says about satisfaction or contentment in work. 
Once again, it goes back to God appointing all things. He appoints joy and sorrow. He also appoints us our place in life. And we find contentment and satisfaction there. Look how Paul puts it. He says in verse 17, Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. Or it might be worded even better, uh, in which he was when God called him. This is the rule I laid down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Now look at verse 20. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he, was a, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to or once again should remain in the situation in which he was when God called him. Here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. And stay there because we can turn over to Ephesians 6 now if you want to make your way over there. Here's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians. He's saying that your calling in Christ is so enormous in its significance and such a source of great blessing that you needn't worry about what your specific occupation is. He says it's, 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 your occupation is, significant, is, is as significant as whether you're circumcised or not. Now just tell me, how significant is that? Not very significant. Were you circumcised? Well, don't get uncircumcised, which is a joke. How do you do that? You can't. Were, were you uncircumcised? Well, don't get circumcised. Don't bother with it. Were you a slave? Don't bother with it. Were you free? Don't bother with it. Just be content in whatever situation you're in. Now, he says, don't be a cynic. There's no fun in being a slave. If you get your opportunity to get free, get free. But don't make that the essence of your happiness. Find your contentment in something else other than your work. He's saying your contentment transcends the workplace. You bring contentment to your work. You don't take contentment out of your work. You with me? Let's say that again. You bring contentment from another place to your work. You don't take contentment out of your work. That's his main point. Now, being content, turn to Ephesians 6. And once again, we live in a world here in the first century where there are many kinds of slaves. I think we could probably just translate this employer-employee but uh, because that's often the way it worked. But let's begin with verse 5 of chapter 6. This is page 1912. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart just as you would obey Christ. Wow. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. So what is the apostle saying? Here's what you do with your work. You work as unto the Lord. You satisfy Him. 
And you take your contentment from His contentment because you're serving Him and satisfying Him. And you wait for your reward. You see how you're now going to transcend the frustration of piling up possessions for some fourth generation person to squander it? You see why that doesn't matter? That was never your reward in the first place. Your reward is from Him. And that you take with you. You don't leave that behind. Nobody can squander that. So your work becomes meaningful because the Lord is the boss. You're bringing Him contentment and He is rewarding you. Do you see how the gospel cuts through all of the cynicism that would naturally be ours just living in this world and trying to figure out how we can make our work meaningful? You can't make it meaningful. It sucks. Apart from the living God being your boss and being your rewarder. You're in His kingdom. You're in His workplace. No matter what your job is. I mean, let's just take the extremes. Whether you're a king or a slave. In both cases, if you're His, you're His slave. And in both cases, you're His freedman. That's what the apostle is saying. And that's what brings vitality and energy and vision and purity and power and satisfaction to not only our work, but to our workplace through us. We're the people who bring in a very different mindset into that workplace. So God gives satisfaction in our work. You can see a little bit of it in Ecclesiastes. You can see a whole lot of it when it comes to the New Testament teaching on work. Fifthly, back to Ecclesiastes now. Page 1037. Your Bible probably automatically opens there by now. Page, uh, uh, rather, verses 14 and 15, we'll see this. God's sovereignty elicits man's reverence. Notice what he says in verse 14. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing taken away from it. Skip down to verse 15. Whatever is has already been and what will be has been before. So basically, uh, the author is saying what is, it is what it is, he's saying. And it's not going to change. It's going to endure like this until the end of the world. Why would God do this? Well, last part of verse 14, God does it so that men will revere Him. The word there is for fear. So that men will be in awe of Him. They will reverence Him. They will be awestruck by Him. They'll bow down to Him. They'll worship Him. So, in a way that only God's wisdom could explain, the reason for all this mess that we're in is so that we'll worship Him. You can go into the woods and contemplate that for a full day and you won't come out and exhaust the meaning of that verse. If you think about everything in this life, the meaning of it is that God wants us to worship Him. And you can take everything in your life, I mean everything, all of your joys and all of your sorrows and all of the cussed confusedness about life, you take it off into the woods before the Lord and you think it through long enough and hard enough and you'll find that you come up with this. The ultimate purpose of this is for me to worship God. If you'll just think about it long enough, that's where it'll take you. That may be the most profound verse in the entire book, right there. This is all that we might revere Him. If I'm a sinner and I don't live in a world like this, I'm not going to worship Him as well as I do. You with me? Given my fallen nature, if I live in any different kind of a world, I'm not going to worship God as well because that is God's whole point with my life. So for now, 
My whole being is mixed. And so I'll live in a mixed world. And this mixed world will be one of the ways in which God disciplines my heart so that I learn to revere Him. That's what He's saying. So without God, work sucks. But you know what? With God, work can be redeemed. We'll come back to that. Let's look at verses 15 through 17 in chapter 3. And here we're talking about justice. And here's what Edmund Burke said. The eternal laws of justice are our rule and our birthright. Joseph Addison said, There is no virtue so truly great and godlike as justice. Some people would, would deify justice itself. It's the meaning of life. Here's what the Bible teaches. Without God's judgment, justice sucks. That's true. Without God as judge, we're never going to have any kind of justice. Look at verse 16. Well, if you look at the latter half of 15, it's kind of a swing verse. And he says, and God will call the past to account. Okay? Then you go into verse 16 and he says, I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, what do we get? Wickedness. In the place of justice. Wickedness. It's tough to live in this world. We live in a tough neighborhood. You know, sometimes I think about some of the neighborhoods in our city. You know, 38126, that'd be a tough neighborhood to live in. I don't know how to live down there. I don't know how to handle crack house being on this side and, and uh, homeless people all around and sanitation being miserable and uh, law enforcement not being so hot. I don't know how to handle all that. Well, try my neighborhood. How about fraud and gossip and backbiting and image management and sexual innuendos all over the place and people sleeping with the wrong people? And every neighborhood's tough. And there's injustice everywhere, no matter where you look. And you can just look in the courtroom. Some of you spend your lives in courtrooms as a profession. Just look. I mean, we have people going to jail. We've had it revealed this past couple or three years. People have spent 20 years in jail. And then a DNA test shows that they weren't guilty. That sucks. I mean, you know, for us, you go, wow, man, I can't believe that. We, well, I guess we goofed on that one. For that guy... 20 years. Think where you were 20 years ago. You got in your head? Now, since then, you've been in prison the whole time because somebody, some jury convicted you when you were innocent. That sucks. On the other hand, we have people who are guilty of stuff. And some of you know they were guilty. And the court let them off because they didn't have enough evidence or because someone made a wrong judgment. That sucks. You see it all the time. In the court, you see it in your life. Life is not fair. Do I need to remind you of that? How many times have you been stabbed in the back and you couldn't prove it? It's just not fair. And the writer is saying, hey, I saw this 3,000 years ago. Hadn't changed a bit. Without God, God's judgment, justice sucks. But look, verse 17, there is justice later. God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked. And gentlemen, that's the only way you bring clarity to right and wrong and good and evil. There will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed, he says. So there will be a time when God brings everything under judgment. Once again, how do you face a world that is unfair? How do you face a business that is unfair, a marketplace that is unfair, a city that is unfair, politics that are unfair? How do you face it? 
There's only one way. And you see it once again in the, the epistles of Paul. How in Romans 12, he talks about how you transcend the hatred, divisiveness, and unfairness of this life. You wait until the coming day of judgment. So you're not deriving your satisfaction for justice out of this life. Once again, you're bringing contentment and satisfaction and justice and bringing it to this broken life because you have a transcendent mentality. You have an eternal mentality. You know that things are going to be taken care of one day. Everything is going to be made right and all the sinners will be punished and all of God's people will be vindicated. You know that's going to happen. So you have peace and contentment among a bro- uh, in the midst of a broken world. So without God's judgment, justice sucks. But you know what? With God's judgment, there is justice. And we delight ourselves in it. Now, thirdly and lastly, we want to talk about this whole idea of death. And let me just quote a few more people here. Socrates says this, No man knows whether death may not even turn out to be the greatest of blessings for a human being. And yet people fear it as if they knew for certain that it is the greatest of evils. John Greenleaf Whittier said, God calls our loved ones, but we lose not wholly what He hath given. They live on earth in thought and deed as surely as in heaven. Benjamin Franklin says, Death is as necessary to the Constitution as sleep. We shall arise refreshed in the morning. Here's the Bible's view. Without eternity, death sucks. It really does. And you can John Greenleaf Whittier your funeral all you want to, and you can Benjamin Franklin and Socrates your funeral all you want to. It sucks. And this is what the author is saying. Verse 18 through 20, we die like animals. You know, (laughs) I buried my dog last year. In fact, I buried two dogs. Well, I actually only buried one. The other one my son took off to the vet to put her to sleep. But the first one I buried, it was not a happy experience. Her name was Allie. uh, And Allie knew her time was coming, so she kind of crawls up under the house, under the porch. You know how it goes. They're just kind of getting away from humanity and getting away from people and other dogs, you know, her little fellow dog there. And she just was, and she couldn't move. She couldn't even lift her head. And so, you know, Allison, my wife, is, you know, trying to give her water and get her to do something. And I'm going, oh, this is pitiful. So the next morning, the dog dies, you know. So what do I do? I go out and get my mallet and I dig a big hole, you know, in the back of the yard. And uh, I didn't do it deep enough. So I put Allie in it and she was still sticking over. So. Dragged her back out, you know, <laughs> dug the hole a little deeper. <laughs> and she was, you know, she, Allie overate, so she's a big fat dog. You know, I, I couldn't carry her, you know, like, in, like you should, you know, carry the dog. I dragged her, you know. <laughs> and so I just took her by her, you know, I got two legs in this hand, two legs in this hand, and I'm just dragging her on the ground, you know. So I put her in the hole, and it wasn't big enough, so I dragged her back out, you know, dig the hole a little bit more, drag her in. And then uh, I put a, some dirt on top of it, got it all covered up, and t- took the dirt, had the glassy, grassy clods on it, put them on top, you know, so it looked decent and in order, like a good Presbyterian funeral. 
And then, you know, my wife comes out and I get the prayer book. And we thank God for Allie, you know. And my, my wife believes that animals go to heaven and I, I'm more like Ecclesiastes. I think the, the dog just died, you know. So I don't promise anything about resurrection, you know, to the dog. I just, we just thank God for Allie, you know, and we're crying. You're all crying. We're going to miss Allie. And then it rains the next day. Yeah, it wasn't pretty. So we have to dig up, you know, and put a little bit more dirt on there. And I put a few things on top of it to weigh it down. So that summer, I'm mowing the grass going around that thing, just hoping that Allie doesn't come out of it and bark at me or something. And I think it's okay now. I think she's safely down underneath there. And I'm thinking, Wilson, that's the way it's going to be with you. They're probably just going to drag you out, you know. <laughs> dig a hole a couple times, you know. And it'll rain and you'll start floating to the top and they'll put things back on it. And this is the way it's going to be. And it's just sad. We, this, is what, this is what Ecclesiastes says. We die like animals. And sometimes, guys, I think you're living your life as though it ain't going to happen. You think it's not, you know, especially the younger you are, you just, think, you just don't think about it. It's not going to happen to me. Oh, yeah, it is too. <laughs> it's going to happen. In fact, one of you last week sent me a little CD with a suggested theme song for Amen on Ecclesiastes. And uh, I, I looked up that song. Uh, it was nice on the CD, but I lo- we looked it up on YouTube, and I thought you might enjoy this little version. Let's make this the Amen theme song for Ecclesiastes, our study of Ecclesiastes. Let's roll it. Do you have that, Rob? Can somebody play that? Let's see if we can get it on here. If not, we'll do it next week. Hello? I think he's downstairs. Somebody going to play it? Okay, you're going to go check. All right? Meanwhile, back at the ranch, you know, Plato said this, and this was a platonic view of body and soul, that your soul is eternal. It's immortal. And, of course, some of the... uh, first century classical thinkers thought that it was actually divine. And what happened was the tragedy of being in this life is your soul, your immortal soul, which is perfect, is trapped in this body. And so salvation is basically delivering your soul from your body. And that was the Platonic view. But the fact of the matter is, uh, what Ecclesiastes is not suggesting that at all. (laughs) He's saying, look, you're just like the animals. And who knows, he says in verse 3, uh, verse 21, who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down to the earth. He says the philosophers can philosophize all they want to, but who knows that? Uh, and so uh, B is we don't know where we're going. But you know, I was at a funeral one time, speaking of which, and uh, I won't say which denomination it was, but I was at this funeral. It was, it was a family friend. And she was a delightful person. And the pastor for the day got up and said something like this. Well, we all love, I'll call her Betty. We all love Betty. She's such a delightful person. And she left such a good taste in everyone's mouth and just left such a good aroma behind from all the wonderful deeds she had done for all of us. And of course, we don't know what's on the other side, he said. But we just hope that something good will happen to Betty. 
I want to get up and throw a hymn book. He says, for who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen, we do know what's going to happen. That's exactly the reason for Holy Week. Turn over real quickly, 1 Corinthians 15. We've got about six or seven minutes left here. 1 Corinthians 15 and see what the biblical answer is to the Bible itself. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the resurrection. And he says, contrary to Plato, in verse 35, this is page 1866, but someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God, verse 38, gives it a body as He has determined. And to each kind of seed, He gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh. Animals have another. Birds another and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. You see, contrary to Plato, it's not that our soul is just delivered from the body. No, it's that the, the body is delivered from its corruption. It is sown in dishonor, verse 43. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that is Christ, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For if the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 58. This is what this all has to do with your work. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because, look at this precious statement, you know, that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The resurrection brings meaning to everything, including your relationships, your work, and your daily life. It is not in vain because of the resurrection of the body. Not just the deliverance of the soul out of this broken world. We're going to take our bodies, resurrected bodies, with us into heaven. 
And so all that's been done in the body is significant because it's connected to eternal life when we will have perfect justice. We'll have a perfect environment and perfect love. Well, let's conclude with this. So what? Five things I suggest for us. First of all, look for the simple pleasures of life and work and thank God for them. We learn that from Ecclesiastes. To look for the simple pleasures. They're there. Don't hold them in disdain. Uh, Take those simple pleasures. Eat and drink and work and find your satisfaction. Secondly, don't get carried away with work. But don't neglect your work. So don't, once again, don't find the meaning to your life and your work. It's meaningless in and of itself in this broken world. The only way your work has any meaning is when it's connected to the resurrection of the body in eternal life. Then it has some meaning. But don't get carried away with your work itself. And don't neglect it. Because God has appointed all things, including your place wherever you are. Serve that master as unto the Lord. So don't neglect it, but don't suck out of it the meaning of life. It was never meant to hold the meaning of life. Thirdly, accept life's inevitable mixture of joys and sorrows. That'll keep you from being a cynic or a complainer. Life is made up of a mixture. You need to accept it and understand that we're passing through. We're pilgrims on our way to the celestial city. This is not the celestial city. This is not my ultimate home. Fourthly, forget changing it. Now, we're to serve in this world. We're to serve the poor. We're to seek cultural transformation if God allows it. We're to be involved in politics and business and the arts. So get involved. Be salt and light. But don't think you're going to change the basic nature of the world. It's broken. It's fallen. And it's not going to be redeemed fully until Christ comes back. And fifthly, don't forget, the main point of it all is fear the Lord. Reverence Him in everything, regardless of the circumstances. And the purpose of every circumstance is to lead us to revere Him. So, is work meaningless? Well, it would be, except for Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the men who put their faith in Him. Let us pray. Father, uh, we thank You for the truth of Your Word which sheds light on every event of every day. And we confess that we often live those moments without consulting You and even consulting our own memory bank of the Scripture lessons You've taught us through the years. But our prayer today is that we may go into the world as men who are sons of the resurrection, who know whose we are, we know whom we serve, and we know where we're going, so that from our hearts comes meaning that we now bring to every home, every workplace, every church, every neighborhood. Please make of us the salt and light you mean for us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're going to die. See you.